Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Food 360 with Mark Murphy is a production of iHeartRadio. I want you to build little stories on your menus so it's more interesting and build some personality into the menu. I always say, we don't really own Red Rooster. The guest is really telling us that better be on the menu. Welcome to Food 360, the podcast that serves up some serious food for thought. I'm your host, Mark Murphy. Some of you may know me as a chef and a New York restaurateur. Today's episode is all about menus. Sure, a clever design and a cool-looking place is important, but a restaurant is nothing without a solid menu. My guests Marcus Samuelson and Greg Rapp, who you heard at the start of the show, both know a thing or two about that. I sat down first with Greg. He's been working in the menu engineering field for the past 36 years, and he has developed his own tools and strategies to help more than 1,000 restaurants and hotels build successful and profitable menus. Greg, thank you so much for joining me here. Thank you. It's great to be here. My first question, when you go out to eat and you see other restaurant menus, what is the number one mistake people do? The biggest mistake I see is when they put a price list on the right side, they'll list all the prices. So a a guest will find the cheapest item and then read the menu that way. What I would do on a menu is put the description and then put a period and then two spaces and then put the price in the same font. That way, if you're looking for the cheapest item, you can find it, but you're not going to look at the menu for price. The other big mistake I see on menus is dollar signs. I've been taking those off menus 
for 37 years now, they just remind people of money. So say you have 150 menu items and they have $150 signs. If you remove those, it softens those prices. Does that also count on wine menus as well? Wine lists are the worst menus there are because they just give us the name of the wine and a price. And so the restaurateur tasted hundreds of wines and only a few wines end up on the list. A restaurateur should explain why that wine is on the list and tell the story behind it. That's what I love about iPad menus is iPad menus now you can get as much or as little information as you want. So how does a menu influence what people are going to order? Well, think about those restaurants in New York that you see that have the the sandwich name is just a person's name, you know, in the delis. And uh, you have to read all the ingredients to figure out what it is. So when the menu is laid out with strange names and it's not organized correctly, a person has to read the whole menu and they will overwhelm. And when a person overwhelms, they'll default to a menu item that is easy or what they had last time. Or, you know, when you go into these casual chain restaurants and they hand you a huge pile of menus and and books and bar books and all of that, they go, oh, I know this place has a cheeseburger and a beer. Take all this work away and bring me a cheeseburger and a beer. But if you organize the menu and a person can navigate it, and find items if they can go through their categories and they can go to a seafood section if they're interested in seafood or they can go away from that seafood section if they aren't interested in seafood. And like I say, the sooner a a person finds what they want, the more they'll typically order too. They'll order more in the pizza industry if, if they're putting the pizza together on their own instead of ordering a signature pizza and they're arm wrestling with their whole family on what goes on the pizza today, they're not going to order as many salads or as many breadsticks. So the sooner we can help them order a signature pizza, the more they'll typically order. So how you describe a dish is important. What makes a good description? The best descriptions have the ingredients up front and then the copy about it at the end. You know, because a person, when they're looking over a menu, they're looking for what they want And those ingredients are what are going to entice them into that item. And if they find something that they don't like, they'll move on to the next one. But if you put your copy at the front that you say, oh, this is the best or something, that sell copy at the front of the description, they have to read through that to get to the ingredients. And a lazy menu is what I call when a chef just puts the ingredients and commas and that's all it is. You know, it doesn't tell you anything about the food or or the item or what it's about. And again, I want you to build little stories on your menus so it's more interesting and build some personality into the menu. And then there's also something called decoy items on menus. What do those do? Decoys are items when we put something crazy on the menu. Oh, I was working in uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and the owner of the resort had a 50-foot yacht he was trying to sell. So we put the steak on the uh, menu. It said New York steak with 50-foot yacht and a bottle of wine, and it was $425,000. And then underneath it, we put New York steak without yacht, 43 bucks or whatever the price was. These things are what we call decoys. They get your brain screwed up in a sense. And excited because it's unexpected and it's very fun uh, and you can make a point with it. And when you look at a menu, you've got those seven items in each category that you have to determine which one of those do you want. And seven is the magic number that we use on menus because if you do eight or more items in a section, a person will overwhelm. 
you can look up the research on this. That's why phone numbers had seven numbers in it, because if they put eight or more, people couldn't remember the number. There's a lot of interesting research on the power of three. Even a car ad is using that now. But when we put three drinks, let's say, it makes it easier to order as they put their thought into what they're going to have. Talking about the psychology behind names, so if you're going to use the name Grandma's Chicken Soup, is that going to influence a consumer if they're going to use words like that or homemade, homemade ice cream? Yeah, because it sounds better and a person, when they read something, they taste what we tell them that they're tasting. It adds a, a halo of quality to it and says something about it. So you know that it was developed by somebody and it doesn't come out of a big commercial kitchen. So by naming the food, you're adding a story behind it and you're adding value to it. The more you write on a menu, the longer the description, the more value you have. And what about this 1099, 1095? Are people really tricked that if it's a 999, that it's not a $10? I don't, I don't quite see people not understanding that. Let me walk you through my theories on this, okay? When 95 says, hey, we're a friendly little neighborhood place, come on in, sit down, we're glad you're here. 99, if you price it at 99, it says, hey, we're trying to trick you. It's only one penny off. So you don't trust that restaurateur as much. 95 is friendlier and nicer. Now, OO pricing, it's got a little snob appeal to it. It says, hey, if you can't afford it, why are you here? sitting in that seat. You take the OO away and it's even got more of an attitude to it. So when you go out to a restaurant, are you able to just sit there and order or do you sort of look, oh gosh, they really want me to do this or they should do that? What do you, what do you look for when you go to a restaurant and you sit down? When I go to a restaurant and sit down, I look for what I want and I peruse a menu. We've got the latest eye tracking so I can now tell how they read over a menu and what they focus on and we look for the hot spots. You mean to tell me that you have like a camera focused on somebody's eyes as they're looking at a menu? Or is the menu looking back at people? And What does that mean? We have these glasses that we put on a guest and then they'll read the menu and then they'll order. And so we'll do some tests on new menus before they'll roll out. Typically, the chains have hired me to do this. And, and I haven't seen anyone else in the industry that is using the technology that we're using. It's the best. The old eye trackers had these big clunky glasses and they were very uh, cumbersome. But the newest, latest, coolest ones are hip and cool. And you put them on and you can walk through the restaurant and I can see what a person sees before they sit down because, you know, maybe they walked by a table and saw... The burger. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they saw something that they liked and they ordered it. And how much influence does that have is what we're trying to study too. But I then watch their eyes on how they go over a menu and then I take 30 people and I take their eye tracking tape in a sense and layer it so I can find out where the hot spots are. It's, it's fun, but it's complicated. That's pretty interesting. I really want to thank you for coming in and chatting with me today. Now, I'm completely fascinated that you saw this job, you went out and you invented it for yourself and you did the research that you did. I don't want you to give away all your secrets. We still want you to get hired to go do your consulting, which is really kind of cool. Love it. Greg, thanks for coming in. Thanks. More on Food 360 right after this quick break. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. 
What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb. Tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Welcome back to Food 360. I invited my next guest on the podcast because, well, wait till you hear me read his bio. You'll understand why. Marcus Samuelson's love for food started at a young age when he would cook in the kitchen with his grandmother. At 23, he became the youngest chef ever to receive a three-star review from the New York Times for his work at New York's Aquavit. He was awarded James Beard Foundation's Rising Star Chef Award in 1999 and Best Chef in New York City Award in 2003. He won season two of Top Chef Masters and beat yours truly in a chopped all-stars with the judges competing. And he's opened several restaurants in New York and around the world, some of which we'll be talking about today. All right, Marcus, thank you so much for coming. Do you hear that silent drum roll? And then, then Marcus walks in the room. Is that, no, we, no. Had to, we had to do the drum roll. No, I'm just very excited, <laughs> and I want to say congrats to you, man. This is a big deal. You got good digs here. I know. I got like a, I'm in a studio. We're in a fancy place downtown. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. So you were born in Ethiopia, raised in Sweden. We both have a European background, yeah. basically. Yeah, we're both Euro trash. Uh, we're both Euro yeah. trash. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're, we're big in Japan or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 When you think about Aquavir, you think about any restaurants, right? Pushing ingredients sometimes is something that we feel like we, we want to do because we want to educate our customers, but we still want them to feel comfortable. Like yeah. for I have a really silly example. I've used it before, but on my menu at La Fourchette a long time ago, and I had this menu item. It was a cumin-scented carrots with some type of fish and a bel blanc. And it was a great dish because I love cumin. Yeah. And I wrote cumin on the menu. Yeah. Nobody bought it. And then I did the exact same dish. I took cumin off. And people were like, wow, this is really good. I love the flavor. What's that flavor? Like, they wouldn't order it because of cumin written on there. So yeah. for you, have you had that experience where you're like, I want to push the boundaries. I want to push my, the, my, my customers' palate's boundaries. But they don't, they're not going to know it until they're eating it. Well, I, I think Scandinavian food today is a thing. But back when we were starting it, it wasn't a thing, right? So for me, it was all those Scandinavian flavors that could be very foreign to people, it was about, I couldn't have a foreign ingredient 
and a foreign technique. Like I had to pick one, right? That's why we had so much salmon on the menu because people could relate to that. But if I light smoked something, I it was always about choices, right? About how do people understand Scandinavian food when there was no really before internet and food, you know what I mean? So I used to say Scandinavian food to me still is about building blocks. It's about pickling, preserving, it's about getting closer to nature, like foraging and all this stuff. It's also about game meats, right? And game meats, as we know as chefs, that it does taste differently. It might be tougher. It might be this different thing. Totally. So articulate that on a menu was always challenging. But then you also realize when you cook for somebody or something, that tribe might be smaller, but you know, you have a base to cook to. Almost like if you cook a regional Italian restaurant, right? right. You have that base to cook to. And that's what I always saw. Like, there are all these 50 Scandinavians a night <laughs> that's going to come with one friend. And now we're like a little bit more, right? And that became the messaging, right? And you and I started also way before social media. So I think we weren't outed in a sense. Like, if we made a mistake, it was a mistake for that night. But we can go back tomorrow and fix it. It wasn't like, right. boom, on Insta right away. So it's a little bit more forgiving. You really pushed the boundaries with Mercado 55. Yeah. And I remember going there because yeah. I had a little bit more money by the time you opened that place. So I was I was able to go. But that was African cuisine. Now, yeah. you pushed the boundaries. Yeah. I think I remember you doing a peanut soup. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. what was your mindset when you're going, okay, I got to write a menu, African flavors, and I'm, in, I'm downtown in the meatpacking district where... Uh, nobody's really talking about food right back then. Well, I mean, I thought, Mark, like, this idea about Africa and Africa food, right, we're still searching for that because Africa is a billion people. There's about 50-plus nations. And, you know, Europe has done such a great way of articulating their history, both documenting it and talking about each country in terms of pride and history, rituals and food. When it comes to Africa, the authorship has been taken away. So, like, you would never say a Portuguese person and a person from Poland should eat the same food, right? It's very clear, right. like, what, you know, one is more herring and cabbage and one is more bacalhau and, you know, beautiful sardines and olive oils, right? If, if I would then open up the package between Nigeria and Angola, people would be like, what, huh? And still to this day, there is that misconception, yet 90% of all food stems from Africa. <laughs> you think about that. So I think wow. that, so it was, for me, it was really about thinking about the authorship of things, right? Like the first wines came from the Egyptians, right? The first foie gras came from Afri Africa. Things that we think about American food, like how we got rice to this country, okra, of course, and so on, it came from Africa. Yet the authorship is just bleep, separation. And even to modern time, if you would say to a friend, I'm going to give you some great Belgian chocolate. And she would be, or he would be like, oh, that's great, cool. But where, where exactly <laughs> is the coca bean <laughs> in Belgium, right? I bought, it's like Swiss chocolate. Everybody yeah. talks about it. You're like, wait a minute, there's, you're not growing that there. Yeah, so there's like the, the authorship, there's no link, therefore. So give me the list of countries you have restaurants right now. You obviously have restaurants in Sweden. I know you have a restaurant in London. You're obviously in New York City and in New Jersey, right? Mm -hmm. You've opened one in New mm -hmm. Jersey. I love that you think about New Jersey as a different country. I do. Yeah, we're yeah. opening, we're in the middle of opening right now in Montreal with Four Seasons, which has been uh, an amazing ride. That's a different country too, right? It is, right, and checking. it's also on top of it, they speak a language that you speak, French. Well, the French don't think so, but okay, <laughs> go ahead. That's okay, good. I'm going to come back to that. No, but it's been, I feel like being a restaurant worker, being a chef, is the biggest privilege of my life. 
and be able to communicate with dishwasher, cooks, waiters, waitresses, customers. It's such a big privilege. And for me to be able to do that lingo all over the world, it's hard. But it's also one of the things that actually, besides my son, my wife, that gets me up in the morning and be right. like, I'm really excited, Mark. And I know you're excited too. And we worked for such a long time. And for us to, I know you were excited coming down here tonight, today. I know that. I just know how you are. Mm-hmm. And that's such a privilege to be able to work with something and connect with people on different levels with something that you love. There's very few jobs that you can do that. And it's not a linear path. It doesn't make sense for anyone else but me and my team. Right. But I'm going to keep doing it with my tribe, with my team, and people are, we're fortunate, people are coming still. But when you're writing the menus to get them to come, when you're writing a restaurant menu in Sweden or you're writing it in New York, what differences do you find when you're writing those menus? Well, and I've been an immigrant six times, right? So, But it's also about then understanding what local means in those places. So That's when we hard. speak in Stockholm, you can't open the restaurant without thinking about what sustainable conversation do you want to have. So one of our restaurants there is a third of percent of the menu is vegetarian. And you, that's a starting point for just starting. So that's in Sweden. If I go to Sweden and open a restaurant without a third of my menu vegetarian, I will be closed. Well, maybe not, but it's sustainable at least. So it's okay. not it's not a flash. It's you doing that, yeah. right? So I think there's a middle where everybody want to be and it's sticky and that's where everybody want to be. But local means that it's not a, a tag word. You actually have to slow everything down and have them then this dialogue with cooks and waiters and, and the team and be like, and the what, neighborhood. And the neighborhood. What matters here? In Harlem, you've got chicken and waffles, you've got shrimp and grits, and you've got ramen and aguachile. I know you, and I know the restaurant, and you're obviously you can talk about it much more eloquently than I can, but there's a lot of neighborhoods up there. There's a lot of culture up there, and you reflecting that on the menu as a local well, restaurant. that is the eloquent way of saying it, but I'm also just inspired by the chop judges. <laughs> so it's clearly there's a Ron and Amanda and Amari and a Scott. So, yeah, you so, got to so, have one of each on the menu? Yeah, okay. and the Jeffrey's clearly the most expensive. That's when the tomahawk comes in on the weekend. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, then there's Jeffrey. With a lot of attitude. That's just, <laughs> let's just put that out there. But I so, think everybody knew that. Yeah. No, but I mean, Harlem is a village in the city, right? It's its own neighborhood. It's truly a neighborhood. And East Harlem is very different. And East Harlem has three different neighbors. One is Puerto Rican, one is Mexican, and one started as a Jewish and Italian neighbor further east. That's why you got Rayos and, you know, Patsy started from there, right? So that's all re- representing that. And again, that makes sense to me, right? right? But from an outsider looking in, and once you're in that bar, in that place, it actually does make sense. But not from a website, not even from an Instagram. You kind of have to be in the thick of it. And we're so blessed. Like, we have, every year since we opened, our business has gone up. And it's not something I take lightly. I think it's about all about being inclusive and being in and of that neighborhood. And it's not really, I always say, it's not. we don't really own Red Rooster. We have this lucky baton that we can manage and work here. And the guest is really telling us that better be on the menu, right? right? And it's this dialogue <laughs> that I missed when I lived in Midtown, right? Like, I used to go home from Aquavit to walk home, and people were always nice, but no one really talked to you. No one really talked to me. And in Harlem, when I walk home, those five blocks, like, why is that chicken $28? You know, my son needs to get a job there. Uh, the prices of the cocktail should go down, whatever it right. might be. You hear something. You hear something. And my wife was like, Marcus, 
you stop working now, like they should leave you alone. I said, listen, the one thing that is worse than this, it's complete silence. That means that no one cares. There's a privilege to have people in your face like that. Totally. And, and as you were just talking about, the customers are telling you what to do. I've had experiences on my menus mm. where I've put things on and I want to take them off and I get yelled at. But, and I know you had that. <laughs> yeah. Didn't you have something with the mac and cheese? You, yeah, yeah, your mac and cheese, yeah. what do you put? You put collard mac, greens yeah, in or something? Mac and greens. And mac and greens. Super healthy idea. So, yeah. Not a good idea. You're so bad, but you took it off the menu and what, what happened? No, they, were they protesting out Yeah, there was definitely a protest, but we put it back on and then we put some options on it. But only when something matters will it be debated. And in that chaos, it's also the beauty of the restaurant. The soul of the restaurant comes in that chaos. It makes sense for no one else. It's not an office environment, right? It's really a restaurant. And that's, I think, it's that beautiful chaos that we really dream of as chefs, right? And those are the restaurants we want to be at. And it's reflected in, in the staff. It's reflected mm -hmm. in the menu. It's reflected in the food and the guests. All of it is just, it's a beautiful painting, what yes. restaurants <laughs> yes. are. It's the most chaotic painting in the world. Um, but talking about menu items, like you were just saying about your mac and cheese and you have to keep it on. Yeah. I had that problem when it was more of the press that did it to yeah. me. I remember I opened Landmark and I had this, it was just a silly dish. I took profiteroles. Instead of putting them in the dessert menu, I filled them with goat cheese and sweet garlic and oh, thyme. Oh, you better not. And I put three of them on a plate and I made a little salad with some roasted red peppers and frisee. Nice. And it was a good dish. I yeah. liked it. And then somebody wrote about it in yeah. the press. Yeah. And I was just about to take it off the menu. <laughs> and then I couldn't take it yeah, off the menu. And then I tried to take it off the menu. And I was like, it was one of these things. I was like, this damn thing's going to be on the... And I think it was on the landmark menu for close to 10 years until I was able to take it off. And finally, I'm like, I don't care what they say. I'm taking it I'm off. Taking I'm it sick out. of it, okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm making this decision, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not letting the press decide what I'm supposed to have on my menu. But it does. But you have to say, between the press and between your customers, they dictate what you're going to have on your menu sometimes. Cooking and being a chef, it's so much part of being a craftsman, but it's also an artist. And then you have to let that go and then send it out to like, because now it's not yours anymore. Now it's the customers and the staff, right? And that's where we're still struggling with. Like, look, but, 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 and what about this great dish? What is the greatest incredible dish that you felt that you've done right. that didn't resonate. But didn't work, exactly. <laughs> didn't work. You're sitting there eating this going, this is awesome, and yeah. you put it on the menu, it's like, oh, nobody wants this. <laughs> one more question. Yeah. Substitutions on menus, okay? So this is the one thing that as a chef, because we like to control everything, when somebody tells me that I want the salmon set up with the chicken and the sauce from the steak, there's a reason why we're supposed to stay in the kitchen at yeah. that point, because yeah. you're like, all right, I've created this dish not for you in the dining room to go screw it up. But what is your what is your feeling on oh substitutions? So I'm with you. We thought about the texture. We thought about the sauce. We put in the season. We know about the farmer who did it, right? And then somebody says that exactly what you said. And in the restaurant, I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> All of that, right? To come down to, okay, I want you to be happy. Yeah. That's what I've learned, right. right? So that's what we're doing. But inside, it's like raging bull. It's like, you know, I've also learned, I remember the first time somebody pulled up a laptop in the dining room, right? So I'm like, and, and, and when people started to take pictures of the food, I was kind of like scratching my head. I'm like, what's happening here? Can you actually do that? <laughs> and the service like, he just did. 
<laughs> and that was like one second for the server. But for me, it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not how you were supposed to dine. So we constantly are we're evolving. Changing. We're evolving. We're changing. Exactly. Right? You don't want to be left on that island where like, I told you so, right? Oh, you're like the old grumpy French chef that's uh, still uh, by himself in the kitchen. Well, there's more than the French. Not just the French, but exactly. (laughs) All right, before I let you go, let's do a fun rapid fire round of questions. I'm going to ask you something and tell me the first thing that pops into your head. What is the best meal you've ever had? The vegetarian tasting menu I had at Alain Ducasse in Monte Carlo. It's the best meal I've ever had, I would say. What's the one thing on a menu that you will always order? I always start with seafood starter. I love like crudo, sashimi, something like that. I always start light. That's the Sweden in you. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> it is probably it. And what's the one thing on a menu you would never order? Yeah, I, mean, I am allergic to buckwheat. I got it later in life. I miss eating soba noodles and stuff like that. Other than that, I eat anything. You're at it, yeah. What's the one thing you stay away from on a menu? Uh, supplements, actually. You mean like chicken and a salad or something yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Like, that was never really meant to be there. And I was like, no. I'm it was not just meant to appease somebody that's going to try to change the menu, right? Yeah, yeah. you're probably right. Uh, your favorite thing to cook at the restaurant? I get very excited actually now about spring, right? Because, oh, like, it is that. It's all the colors. Yeah, and, uh, rhubarb is coming, ramped is coming, like, all of that stuff, right? We get it kitty, especially after cold winter like this. I mean, now you have great salmon coming, great seafood coming from the West Coast. It's good stuff. There's so many beautiful things out there. Three people alive or dead that you'd want to have a meal with. Somebody that had helped me so much is Chef Charlie Trotter, and he did so much for American food, and the Chicago food scene would be completely different without him. Also, Nelson Mandela would be an amazing opportunity. I was supposed to do dinner a couple of times, and it just didn't work out. But as I would say, those two. And then um, my grandma, Helga. Oh, we would talk food and different point of views. And Your grandma was a pretty big influence on you? Huge. From... Also that idea that she was born very poor. She was a domestic laborer. Nobody asked her if she liked her job. But the food she cooked, her language, much more than talking, was food. Yeah. And when you're cooking in the kitchen, what do you listen to? It's a, it's a New York miss. It could be everything from Tribe Called Quest. But today we were actually listening to a little bit of Kiss. We were talking about Kiss, which is fun. And I'm all over the place with music. And I love, I mean, David Bowie, Prince will be on, of course. But um, there's nothing wrong with a little Kiss before the makeup came off, not after. That's a very big difference. <laughs> there's a big difference? It's a big okay. difference, right. yeah. Sounds good. Sounds yeah. good. All right, Marcus, thank you so much for thank joining you, my me. Thank you, my friend. Today. I'm so proud of you. This is exciting. Awesome. All right, thank you, my thank friend. You, man. Thank, thank you, man. Thank you. Well, I hope you got something out of all that menu talk. I know I certainly did. I'm going to look at a menu a little differently when I go out next time. I want to thank Greg Rapp and Marcus Samuelson for joining me, and uh, we'll see you next time. Food 360 is a production of iHeartRadio, and I'm your host, Mark Murphy. A very special thanks to Emily Carpenter, my director of communications, and producers Nikki Etor and Christina Everett. Mixing and music by Anna Stumpf and recording help from Julian Weller and Jacopo Benzo. Thank you to Bethann Macaluso and Kara Weissenstein for handling research. Food 360 is executive produced by Mangesh Hetikador. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.